Hello and welcome to or welcome back to Lunch with Auntie. Lunch with Auntie is my interview podcast series and in this episode I am interviewing Dr Jade Kwa who is working frontline during this COVID-19 pandemic which makes her an absolute hero and she took time after a 12-hour night shift to talk to me so I'm super grateful for this and stay tuned to find out more about the pandemic and her life during it. Yeah, so firstly, I just want to say thank you, not only for doing this, but thank you for all the work that you're doing. Like I said before, we clicked on the recording. I know that, you know, this is probably a very busy time for you, and thank you for coming on, but thank you for all the work you're doing, you know, going out there, and yeah. You're welcome. (laughs) And I just want to ask, how has your job changed since the beginning of this pandemic? Um, so I work in a pediatric emergency mm-hmm. and um, a lot of the um, emergency rooms work in a similar fashion in the sense that we used to have overlapping shifts. So um, at any point in the day uh, and night, there'd be like a fresh set of doctors coming in because the A&E is 24-7. Yes. Um, but ever since the pandemic happened and we... Um, realized that we had to minimize interaction with other people, especially other healthcare workers. We've been working in modular shifts. So this means that um, the same team of doctors would be on from, let's say, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. And then another team of doctors will come in at 8 p.m. and take over until 8 a.m. So, I mean, different A&Es might run that slightly differently, but the general idea is that you're trying to minimize interaction between teams. So you've always got clean teams and dirty teams. Um, and, and because now we're working, um, in, in the same teams, um, throughout, uh, it does mean that we're, we're, we're much closer. (laughs) It's like having little families, like little nuclear families, Um, but we do really miss, like, I do miss my other colleagues in the other teams whom I, whom I don't see at all. So, I mean, previously you'd see them, you know, either on shift or maybe you might hang out after work. Uh, or we might attend meetings together or plan teaching sessions for the juniors but now I don't see them at all I mean all our meetings are over zoom Um, we we just really stick quite closely to our our modular teams of course and um, and we we try to not mingle with other people outside of the teams so that's one of the major differences um, in terms of our our schedules Um, obviously we're we're working a lot more because um, all you know, all, all all the your days off, like your 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 leave has been frozen till the end of the of the year actually, and we're not allowed to go away. So I mean, our ba- our lives are completely based here, yeah. um, and that sort of I think it might impact upon like the morale of the junior doctors. So as the as a senior doctor, most of us are trying to working quite hard to make sure that juniors feel appreciated, mm-hmm. um, because I think that if you feel unappreciated, then um, you're it shows in the quality of your work as well. So that's something that we're trying to manage as well, like the expectations of the younger team. Um, whereas for the, so that's for the staff, for the space, um, things have changed as well because we now have separate areas in which we see patients who have got um, fever, who have got a very high chance of having COVID and who have got a very low chance of having um, both so 
for example, if you've just come for like a broken ankle, but you don't have a fever and you don't have a positive travel history and you don't have contact with anyone with COVID-19, then we'll, we'll see you in an extended screening area. Um, if you've got fever, but not the other symptoms of uh, COVID-19 or you've not got positive travel or contact, then we'll see you in another area. And if you've got a rather high chance of having COVID-19, then we'll see you in a, in a special area. And in all of these different areas, the patients are all segregated and the doctors put on different forms of protective equipment to see the patients. So in terms of the, the staffing is different, the space is different, and the stuff that we use is also different. So the protective gear obviously is more, um, uh, is more um, well, I mean, it's, it, it, it would be using like a gown and like a, a more uh, a mask with a higher filter uh, quality. Um, and other forms of protection, like uh, maybe like a, a scrub cap or like shoe covers, if we're seeing someone who's got a high chance of having COVID-19. And if we're seeing someone who's uh, in for like a broken ankle, then we'll probably just use a surgical mask. So different levels of protection uh, in different areas where we're seeing different kinds of patients. So things have changed for us in terms of the staff, the space, the stuff. And I guess just um, how our personal lives, how we interact with our family. So lots of doctors have chosen to actually take rooms that are like in hotels so that they really minimize the chances of going back to their families if they're staying with um, elderly parents, for example, or very young children. Um, and then for the rest of us, um, I choose to shower um, and I have a different pair of shoes that I leave at work than the one that I bring home. So it's... Um, it's just different precautions that we take, I suppose, uh, because, because we were at high risk of, of exposure to uh, COVID-19. Um, but, I mean, the reassuring thing is that if, if the system works, then when we do see patients who most likely have COVID-19, we are protected because we're in the personal protective equipment that should um, keep us from harm because we've been trained to wear them and we have enough. So that's, that's a very, that's a blessing. Um, but I mean, a lot of things have to go right for that to happen. So we have to, first of all, the patients have to be able to um, identify if they've had contact with someone else. They have to declare honestly about their travel history. And, um, you know, a lot of things have to go right for, mm-hmm. um, for, for that to happen. If we have people who um, are, knowingly or unknowingly dishonest on their on their declaration forms or if we um if if we're too tired to um to remember to put on the 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 right mask for example then obviously it can all go quite you know quite pear-shaped so um yeah so i guess um in essence we're 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 very uh, aware of the fact that um our families might be at risk and that sort of alters the way we behave in our in our personal lives um, and I think because of all that heightened sense of awareness and the and the um, the news that's coming every day, I mean, it might be international news about other healthcare workers that are dying. It might be local news about new clusters um, in the dormitories that are affected. Um, and it might just be, you know, just new protocols that are in place. So like the, the case definition for someone with um, possible COVID-19 might change from week to week depending on the on, on the data that we're getting on the ground. And so all that information just sort of, I guess it's quite exhausting. So I think 
um, yeah. for healthcare workers, like mentally, it's just just always having to remember what's what's new and and what's happening, and just being aware and all that. It is it is a bit of a strain, I suppose. Um, so I think you know inevitably that sort of affects us like physically. So I think you know I mean it, a lot of us might. Um, I mean, it's not uncommon to sort of like say, "Gosh, I've got a got a pretty bad headache today," or "Gosh, I." I'm feeling quite low or like gosh I I wonder when this is going to end you know and it's just sort of um it can be quite demoralizing and really just like I think the only thing keeping us going is is the fact that we we see each other at work and we we know how hard everyone's working and we just want what's best for like not even like the nation but like like the world right now because everyone's just struggling so I think you just feel like you have an added responsibility to, to do it right and do it to the best of your ability, just like not to, not to let everybody down. Um, yeah, so I think that's, that's what's happening. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you for that. Um, yeah, it does sound like, you know, every single day can be a little bit, you know, difficult. We say that like, you know, it's kind of difficult to see into what could actually be happening in a hospital. Um, and just like from a doctor's perspective, I know that we've read the news, but as you said, there's so much news circulating around true and false. Um, I know that my grandmother has like forwarded about a thousand WhatsApp messages a day and probably about 20% of them were true. Um, but how could, how do you think that we can like prevent the further spread of COVID-19? What are the like doctor approved methods as you could call it? Well, it sounds like, it sounds like there are two main methods of preventing further spread of COVID-19. One of them is good hygiene, particularly hand hygiene. So I think that's something that's been emphasized so many times um, to wash your hands, to make sure that you don't use your hands to like touch your mouth or your eyes or your nose because you want to keep um, germs away from the mucosal lining, so all the wet areas, which is basically like your the conjunctiva in your eye. There's some wet mu mucosal surface inside your nose, and obviously your mouth is quite a wet area. So these are areas where the germs can be. Asking someone to wash your hands seems like a, like the sort of thing you would tell a kindergarten kid, but it's actually completely true, and it's something that lots of people just sort of. Um, um, skim over quite lightly and they, they don't really um, pay much attention to it and that rather instead buy like super expensive um, and, and, and miracle like medicines to water hands guys um, the other thing is social distancing that makes a big deal of the difference because um, it spreads via droplets right so if you're standing in close contact and somebody um, uh, speaks to you and accidentally like spews like um droplets on you then then that's then you're you're in great danger of of catching something um so i think the the current recommendation is two meters but bear in mind that if someone is going to be jogging or running you know by you then the the trail that they leave is actually um over a greater distance so i guess uh, social distancing and good hygiene are the two proven methods to decrease uh, spread for a virus such as COVID-19. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Um, and 
I was just kind of like wondering what it's like to be a mother and a doctor at this point in time, because that for sure can't be, this can't be an easy period. I, I'm sure yeah. you all the time and it's normally quite difficult to balance being a mother and a doctor, but especially during this period. I was wondering if you'd speak a little bit about that. Um, yeah, I guess, I guess there's two parts to that question. The first one is um, what I mentioned before about having a vulnerable like cohort at home so when when we come home from work we're just very aware that you know we we have to be super careful um with uh with our families um the second part is just that they themselves need quite a lot of attention at the moment i mean we're currently on a circuit breaker in singapore as you know which means like the schools are closed so all the children are home um doing like home-based learning so suddenly like every mom has become like a stay-at-home mom, you know, and um, having to do the responsibilities of, of moms that have chosen to stay home, except that, well, I mean, we're still working full-time. So it's it's quite a lot of um, pressure, I think, to keep up. Um, and it's just sort of making sure that we don't, I mean, I'm trying to make sure that I don't screw up on that front. So like when I'm at work, I've got to do my job. And then when I'm at home I've got to be a mum and like suddenly I've got to be a teacher as well so I think that um, just sort of uh, I just have to be aware that I can't let any of those like balls drop <laughs> yeah so that's 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 where I am like personally I mean obviously not not everyone's going through this but I mean I am struggling a bit you've got a lot of hats to wear for these next few <laughs> And just yeah. on another note, um, I know a lot of my friends and I have been doing the um, 555 for the NHS. Um, I don't know if you've seen it on Instagram. It's like a tag where you donate five pounds, you run 5K, and you tag up five other people to do it. And they massively surpassed their goal. I don't know exactly what their goal was, but I think they're in the millions now of funds donated to the NHS. And I was wondering if you had kind of any charities or organizations here that actually support local workers and either local healthcare workers or you know people suffering from covid because i realized that you know when i tagged a lot of people from singapore and myself included we wanted to donate locally rather than internationally if that makes sense mm -mm. okay um well there is something called the courage fund we which is um, by the community chest. And I think that um, that's, I mean, that's always been around. I think it was set up during like SARS, I believe, which was like in 2003. And then since then, it's sort of like gone to help or it's quite dedicated to like healthcare workers um, in, in periods such as this. But um, I mean, to be honest, um, we're, we're quite blessed to have, um, enough like masks and things like that so a slightly slightly different situation than than some of my colleagues have been facing in the NHS where they really need a lot of funds to just buy basic things like masks um, otherwise I have sort of been involved in a little little project so a couple of weeks ago I was actually in quarantine um, at home so I so I had to yeah I had to stay away from people for two weeks and so during that time I decided to um, busy myself with uh, with with a fun project where I was going to feed um, 
hungry and exhausted healthcare workers. So healthcare workers obviously don't just include doctors, but like nurses and the housekeepers and porters and all that. So I just sort of like, um, the, the, the reason why I did that was because I realized when I was at work, um, it was really sweet when people were kind enough to send over like a cup of bubble tea or, or you know, like a, like, a, like a nice sandwich or something. And it's obviously not about whether or not you can afford a $5 cup of bubble tea or whether you can afford to buy a $2 sandwich. It's just the fact that someone cared enough to send it over to you and it it was a it's a, a small like a token form of appreciation and it made a world of difference like the whole shift suddenly became more manageable um so and and obviously to receive food like as a singaporean it's always a very wonderful thing so that's like the preferred like token <laughs> if i may say so myself so um so that was that aspect and the other aspect was just that because we were we were in a coke um a circuit breaker um, situation a lot of the uh, food and beverage operators were in a crisis of their own because they faced um, closure of their businesses and a lot of their employees had to be let go of so it was just all around quite a sad situation um, and then the third aspect was that there were people who were writing to me who were asking if they could donate something to healthcare workers whom they appreciated were taking a day out uh, with no end in sight so with this sort of like tripartite like relationship, um, I was trying to build like a little food drive. So like if a healthcare worker team from like, even if it was another hospital were to write to me um, just to lament on how tired they were and a kind sponsor were to say, I would love to donate X amount. Um, then I would match them up with a food and beverage operator who would be you know, quite keen to sell like a batch of brownies or bubble tea or like square meals, depending on what the team might need. So that was something quite fun that I was working on whilst I was um, under quarantine, um, feeding hungry healthcare workers and helping kind sponsors to get their money to places that um, food and beverage operators, um, particularly those who own small businesses locally, um, just to keep their businesses going. Um, so that was quite a, a, a fun little project that I did. Um, the other charity that I've been supporting locally is um, to help the migrant workers. Yes. So there's a very vulnerable population in Singapore and, and, and that's the migrant workers who, who come to Singapore and they mainly work in places like construction um, sites and they're mainly housed in dormitories. And some of the dormitories are quite nice and some are extremely not nice. So they may be living in rather cramped conditions and they might not be and they might not have um, the basic human um, uh, their basic human needs met. So they may not have like um, cards, phone cards, to be able to call home to their families and keep in touch with them. So, I mean, these things have actually been going on for quite a long time in Singapore, but it was never really something that people talked about. And now in this type of crisis all of a sudden the things that were invisible have suddenly become very visible. And obviously one of the big reasons why is because in a situation where people are, people's immunity are low, they're not well fed, they're not sleeping well, and they're in super cramped conditions, unable to practice good hygiene and social distancing, the two important things that can help to decrease the spread of COVID-19, under those, those conditions, um, a lot of people get sick. So what's been happening suddenly in Singapore is that um, there have been a lot of clusters of outbreaks amongst the dormitory, uh, the dormitories. 
So, I mean, in view of that situation, although obviously this is a systemic problem and this is something that um, an inter-ministry team and uh, working with the embassies and um, the, the, the main, like the dorm, dormitory operators, although that's been set up to make sure that things get better in the long term, even after the COVID-19 situation is resolved, the immediate crisis is still that we've got a lot of a lot of um, dormitory workers that need to be swabbed, that need to be treated, that need to be fed, that need to be um, comforted. And so that's why this is a charity that I've also been involved in um, and to help do a little bit of fundraising for. So I think, um, you know, I mean, I think this COVID-19 crisis in Singapore has sort of exposed a lot of, um, a lot of things that probably need to be mended even after the pandemic ends. Um, but it's just really brought a lot of invisible things to light, to be honest. Um, yeah, no, yeah, I love how, firstly, on the first part of your charity stuff, I love how you're not only helping the healthcare system, you're helping the economy. And like, that's just incredible. Um, and this, I know you probably have an absolutely really, really busy day. It's 7.30 in the morning now. Uh, <laughs> and I just want to say once again, thank you so much. So that is my episode with Dr. Jade Quad done. She is an absolute hero always, and especially during this pandemic time. All her links and everything will be in my description and on my website. And follow Lunch with Auntie for more updates and more interviews with inspiring, incredible women.